Hi there, and welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ronit Malka, and I'm accompanied by Dr. Mark Homan, facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon. And today we'll be discussing chronic facial palsy. Dr. Homan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. And I want to thank Drs. Carlson and Barnes for their excellent otology podcast on facial nerve anatomy and testing, uh, because it lays a lot of the groundwork for what we're going to talk about now. Their discussion of facial paralysis and nerve injury grading, as well as electrodiagnostic testing, are fundamental to our discussion. Great. So starting off, there's already been a podcast, as you mentioned, summarizing acute facial palsy. But could you briefly summarize the difference between acute and chronic facial palsy and how these patients present differently? You bet. Um, I suppose we can define acute versus chronic the same way as any other condition, um, with acute palsy having a duration less than three months and chronic being longer than that. But I don't think that definition really does much for us from a practical standpoint. Um, The vast majority of facial palsy has a rapid onset, reaching a functional nadir within 96 hours or so, um, although some cases may have an insidious onset, and we'll talk more about them later. So to me, acute facial palsy has to do with managing the initial facial nerve insult before the patient has begun to recover. Um, Most facial palsy will recover to at least some extent on its own, and that process will usually finish by about 12 months or so after onset. So in my mind, chronic facial palsy patients are the folks who present after their bodies have already done all they can to recover, and we have to deal with the residual defects. Um, I realize that categorizing patients that way leaves kind of a big gap between acute patients and chronic patients, um, and the folks who fall into that gap are usually the ones then that require observation to see whether they'll get better on their own or whether they'll ultimately become chronic facial paralysis patients. From a practical standpoint, though, all acute facial paralysis patients will have flaccid palsy um, because of impaired signal conduction, so they'll all present with muscle weakness, while chronic patients, on the other hand, may also present with flaccidity if the nerve was anatomically or functionally transected, but far more frequently will present with non-flaccid paralysis, which is to say synchemesis and hypertonicity. So these folks will have significant tension in the facial muscles at rest, and when they try to move, they'll get additional involuntary movements as well as decreased voluntary movement. So um, their voluntary movement, though, won't be decreased because of weakness, but rather because of uh, involuntary contraction of multiple muscles at the same time, which makes coordinated movement very difficult. Great. Uh, And in terms of pathophysiology, can you review real quick the causes of facial palsy? Um, So when you're thinking of a differential diagnosis for for facial paralysis, it probably makes sense to start off anatomically, and I like to go from proximal to distal along the nerve. So proximally, you've got central nervous system problems like strokes, uh, multiple sclerosis, brain tumors, etc. Those will all tend to present very differently from your run-of-the-mill acute facial palsy, so that should clue you in to order the MRI. A cortical stroke will affect the, uh, the contralateral, lower two-thirds of the face, but generally spare the forehead because of its bilateral innervation and will also come with other neurological symptoms and vital sign abnormalities. A brainstem stroke, on the other hand, will look very similar to peripheral facial palsy with ipsilateral hemifacial weakness, except that there will often be multiple lower cranial neuropathies uh, or other neurological signs. Um, A bleed into into a um, cavernous brainstem hemangioma will also look like that. Brain tumors and metastases will typically present with an insidious onset palsy, um, although not always, um, and may or may not come with other neurological findings. Uh, Now, uh, multiple sclerosis is one of very few causes of segmental facial palsy, um, but you'll usually already know the patient's diagnosis since facial paralysis is actually a fairly uncommon initial presentation for MS. Um, From there, we can move out into the peripheral facial nerve itself, where literally dozens of things can uh, injure the nerve. Viral reactivation syndromes are common, um, as is trauma, neoplasm, infection, autoimmune and metabolic disorders, and toxic exposures. The herpes viruses seem to have an affinity for the facial nerve, and even though we tend to think of Bell's palsy as a quote-unquote diagnosis of exclusion, there is a decent amount of literature that actually suggests it's a herpes virus reactivation phenomenon, uh, just like we see when varicella causes shingles or Ramsey-Hunt syndrome years after the initial infection. Um, Other viruses can also cause facial palsy, including Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus, HIV, West Nile, and polio, to name a few. And polio is unique because, like MS, it will also cause a segmental paralysis. Uh, But unlike the other causes we just mentioned, it actually kills the cell bodies in the ponds. So these patients will remain flaccid in the long term. It's not something we see very often in the U.S., but um, certainly we will see that with international patients. 
Um, bacteria can cause facial paralysis as well, usually Lyme disease, but a bad episode of otitis media can do it, and so can tertiary syphilis or leprosy um, and tuberculosis. Trauma is another common cause, often a temporal bone fracture or a facial laceration, but iatrogenic injury from skull-based surgery, parotidectomy, temporomandibular joint surgery, and ritidectomy uh, is often to blame. Less commonly, we'll see facial schwannomas, geniculate ganglion hemangiomas, and parotid malignancies that directly involve the nerve, um, and systemic disorders like Guillain-Barre syndrome, sarcoidosis, uh, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, formerly known as Wegener's, Melkerson-Rosenthal syndrome, and porphyria um, can round out your differential diagnosis as well. But uh, don't forget botulinum toxin, um, both injected and ingested. Um, lastly, though, it's worth mentioning that facial weakness can result from muscle dysfunction too, most commonly from myasthenia gravis or trauma um, or muscle resection from a tumor. Um, and there are, of course, myriad causes for muscle weakness. Fortunately, they don't usually affect the face in isolation, um, and diagnosis isn't generally the responsibility of the otolaryngologist. Great. Um, are there any signs or symptoms that are concerning for a more uh, sinister underlying process that would require further investigation? Uh, certainly, yeah. Um, but I want to take a really quick tangent, um, because even though you didn't specifically ask about Bell's palsy, I think it's worth touching on it just so that we have a baseline against which we can compare the more um, aggressive obnoxious etiologies, the ones that carry those worst prognoses you're mentioning. Um, so fortunately, the majority of patients with facial paralysis have Bell's palsy, uh, which also generally has the best prognosis in terms of spontaneous recovery without synkinesis. Uh, it's almost always hemifacial, reaches a nadir within 24 to 96 hours, and is frequently preceded by a dull earache or headache. Um, the most common story that I hear uh, when I'm talking to these patients is, a day or two before this all started, I had a little earache uh, or I had a headache. Then one night I, uh, I noticed I was drooling while I was brushing my teeth. So I didn't think much of it, but when I woke up in the morning, I noticed my face was drooping. Um, patients may also notice hyperacusis and dyskusia, as well as epiphora and xerophthalmia. If the patient has significant pain and or facial or oral vesicles, you should think of Ramsey-Hunt syndrome uh, or its rashless variant which can be difficult to differentiate from Bell's palsy. Uh, that's called zoster semiherpetae. Um, but Ramsey-Hunt can also come with eighth or 10th nerve involvement, usually manifesting with hearing loss or hoarseness. A bullseye rash or tick bite history should make you think of Lyme disease. And ascending paralysis with a preceding stocking glove neuropathy should make you think of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Both Lyme and Guillain-Barre, as well as other autoimmune diseases, will often present bilaterally although it's usually asymmetric and sometimes asynchronous. Segmental involvement is commonly congenital if you see it, but when it's acquired, it's usually either MS or polio, like we already mentioned, uh, unless it's um, facial trauma, like from a parotidectomy or something. Malignant disease will often, although not always, present with a slow, insidious progression, but it can be acute, so don't rule out malignancy from your differential diagnosis just because the palsy is acute. A benign facial nerve tumor, like a geniculate ganglion hemangioma or facial schwannoma, may also present with a slow onset palsy, but those will often resolve and then recur, leaving some intervening synkinesis. That said, Bell's palsy can also be recurrent in about 8% of patients, so it may not be worth pulling the trigger on labs or imaging until after the patient has fallen off the usual recovery curve for Bell's, which would be about 10 to 12 weeks with no sign of any improvement. And since we're discussing it, what differentiates between paralytic or flaccid and postparalytic or non-flaccid facial palsy? And what etiologies of facial palsy predispose a patient to developing synkinesis? Yeah, uh, well, we kind of alluded to it um, just a minute ago, but I'm glad you asked because it's a really important point. Paralytic uh, or flaccid facial palsy is weakness, and that's how all facial palsy starts off. Non-paralytic facial palsy, uh, also known as non-flaccid or post-paralytic facial palsy, develops after a Sunderland 3 or more severe injury when axons regenerating after Wallerian degeneration connect with the motor end plates of the wrong muscles, which causes synkinesis and hypertonicity. Typically, if that happens, it'll start to develop by about four to six months after palsy onset and potentially continue to worsen until around the 12-month mark. While most, while most patients with Bell's palsy recover um, to normal or very close to normal facial function. Bell's patients with more severe injuries, um, which you can determine on electrodiagnostic testing, are more likely to develop synkinesis. Um, and there's about a 15 to 25% overall risk 
but actually association with pregnancy or dental work seems to increase the risk of synchinitis um, even a little bit more. Ramsey-Hunt syndrome behaves similarly to Bell's palsy uh, in that all patients will also demonstrate some spontaneous recovery, but it carries a much higher risk of synchinesis at about 50%. Most other etiologies of facial paralysis, um, other than CNS injuries and polio, have an even higher chance of causing synchinesis. So again, kind of Bell's is sort of the gold standard and um, everything else um, just tends to get a little bit worse. So moving on, in terms of epidemiology of chronic facial palsy, can you comment on the types of patients presenting with facial palsy and any differences between acute and chronic facial palsy patients? Yeah, sure. Um, so most epidemiological studies will tell you that Bell's palsy accounts for the vast majority of facial palsy. And in my practice, it's about 80% of patients, um, both acute and chronic. Bell's occurs most commonly in the fifth and sixth decades but frequently affects children, young adults, and the elderly as well, with a slight female predominance, although honestly that may stem somewhat from reporting bias. Um, well over 90% of Bell's palsy will get back to normal within a year, or very close if it's treated appropriately, um, and all Bell's patients will improve to some extent. The next most common etiology will depend on your setting. Uh, so in an academic center, it will almost certainly be vestibular schwannoma resection, followed by uh, head and neck cancer, and then iatrogenic injury uh, is close behind that. Ramsey-Hunt syndrome and temporal bone fracture account for a similar number of patients. Um, and after that will be congenital cases and Lyme disease. Um, but the prevalence of Lyme is, of course, totally dependent on geography, much more common in the Northeast and the Great Lakes region, uh, even though almost every state has reported uh, at least one or two cases by now. Uh, after that, we start to see the zebras, uh, central nervous system lesions, autoimmune diseases, uh, which are twice as common in women as in men, and other infections like polio, um, and then uh, benign otologic processes like acute otitis media and cholestitoma. Uh, frankly, though, you're more likely to see a facial palsy that you never actually managed to diagnose than you are to see one of those zebras. Excellent. And when you're evaluating these patients in clinic, what are you looking for? Well, um, I would say regardless of etiology, the two most important prognostic indicators to elicit during history and physical exam are the timing and the severity of the palsy. So for example, um, after a temporal bone fracture or a skull base surgery, a patient who wakes up with complete paralysis may have a nerve transection injury, whereas someone whose paralysis takes hours or days to develop does not. Likewise, in the case of Bell's palsy, Hasbrachman 6 paralysis that comes on within 24 hours is more likely to have a worse recovery than a patient that took three or, or even four days to reach, say, Hasbrachman 5. Uh, in fact, with respect to peripheral nerve injuries, Unless there's a nerve transection or something functionally equivalent, like a tumor eating into the nerve, the axons will regrow and the patient will regain some function. So the question then becomes, how good will that function be? Um, by and large, rapid, complete paralysis, that is to say, Hausbrachman 6 that comes on immediately uh, for a traumatic or surgical etiology, or within 24 hours for infectious or inflammatory causes, um, that's going to have a worse prognosis than an incomplete or a slow onset palsy. Uh, the exception, of course, is a really slow insidious onset, uh, which will often mean nerve invasion by a malignant tumor, and those are not going to get any better on their own. Um, so in addition to determining the severity of the palsy, we need to identify the patient's individual facial movement deficits. And that's going to allow us to develop a treatment plan. And it's important to have a very systematic way of examining the face, and I think a zonal approach works very well. Um, so I like to make two or three passes, looking for different things each time. Initially, I'll look at the upper, then the middle, and the lower thirds of the face with the patient in repose, just evaluating any resting asymmetry. After that, um, I'll look for dynamic asymmetry in brow elevation, eye closure, smiling, lip puckering, and lower lip depression, checking the function of each of the major extratemporal facial motor branches. Lastly, if the patient has chronic palsy, I'll look for synkinesis by having the patient make the same expressions but looking for involuntary movements in other areas, like eye closure when I ask for lip pucker or platysma contraction with brow elevation. Um, I think that's the best way to get an accurate Hausbrachman grade for the patient. But don't forget, in many cases of severe acute facial paralysis, complete eye closure may be preserved for even a few days um, after, um, after even a nerve transection injury, and that doesn't indicate a milder injury, right? because it just takes a while for the levator muscle to contract um, and cause lagophthalmos. Um, so it's always critical to evaluate eye closure, even in patients who we think will recover quickly because corneal abrasions and ulcerations are liable to happen in facial paralysis patients. 
and it's negligence on our part to allow someone with a temporary facial problem to develop a permanent eye problem. Um, in folks who've had skull-based surgery, you'll want to check corneal sensation as well, because if the cornea is numb, the patient's a lot more likely to develop exposure keratitis. Um, patients will frequently volunteer that the affected um, eye is watering or dry, um, actually, or both. But it's also important to check for some of the less co uh, commonly considered facial paralysis symptoms like dyskusia, hyperacusis, and nasal obstruction. Um, and lastly, remember that when you're interviewing facial paralysis patients, you should take your social cues from the good side of the face so that you can recognize when the patient is smiling at you. Otherwise, you may unconsciously interpret that asymmetric smile as an expression of negative emotion, um, which is what a lot of lay people do, and that makes it harder to develop rapport with your patient. Makes sense. That's a good point to remember for all of us. Um... And since we've been talking about the House Brackman scale a little bit, can you review the different methods by which we grade severity of facial palsy? Uh, yeah, you bet. Um, Dr. Carlson and Dr. Barnes kind of talked about the House Brackman scale um, in their podcast a little bit already. Um, but to review, um, it was published in 1984 by a couple of otologists whose experience with facial paralysis presumably focused on hemifacial palsy. Um, so as such, it doesn't really address segmental deficits. Um, or the nuances of synkinesis, but basically says that mild synkinesis is a grade two and moderate is a grade three. That's pretty much it. Um, so if you leave most people alone, they'll eventually make their way back to a grade three on the house scale, um, even if they're pretty significantly synkinetic. Um, so there are a number of more detailed scoring systems available that provide a little bit more precise functional grading, um, like the Yanagihara um, and the updated house Brackman scale, um, also known as the facial nerve grading scale 2.0. Um, because those both offer zonal assessments. Um, and then there's the Sunnybrook scale, which goes one step farther and scores individual facial features differently at rest, with voluntary movement, and with synchronesis. Um, as you can imagine, though, the more detailed scales require a lot more time to use, which is why the original House Brackman system is still the most convenient and universally used method. Um, now, bearing in mind, there's a good chance that you're listening to us talking right now on your phone, you probably won't be surprised that there's also an app-based facial nerve assessment system called the eFace um, that looks at parameters very similar to the Sunnybrook scale, but then automatically calculates zonal scores as well as resting voluntary and involuntary movement scores. So it's really great for research. Um, but another important measure for progress um, for facial paralysis patients is quality of life, um, and that's probably best assessed using the face score, which is a validated instrument similar to the nose scale um, that uh, a lot of folks use for tracking outcomes. And moving on to workup, what kinds of workup like labs or imaging are indicated or typically performed for these patients? Um, yeah, well, um, again, most patients have Bell's palsy. Um, and while they don't usually require much of a workup unless they present with a house grade six paralysis, um, and that only happens about 20% of the time. Um, of course, if you see the patient early in the course of paralysis, um, it may be worth following up again in a couple of days since weakness may take three or four days to hit its functional nadir. Um, if a patient does get to a house six palsy, you can order electrodiagnostic testing, and that would typically start with electroneuronography, or ENOG. Um, and then if the patient has greater than 90% degeneration compared to the good side, you can proceed to needle electromyography, which looks for voluntary, um, viable voluntary motor units. ENOG is pretty subjective though, and not always consistently reproducible. It also depends on com uh, comparison to the normal side, so it's not very useful in cases of bilateral facial paralysis. It also tends to lag behind the clinical picture and should not be performed before three days after the paralysis onset to allow time for valerian degeneration to occur. If a patient has greater than 90% degeneration on ENOG and no voluntary motor units, that's when the textbooks will offer facial nerve decompression, as long as it's still within two weeks of paralysis onset. Now, if the patient doesn't meet decompression criteria, uh, the chance of getting back to normal approaches 90% uh, because the injury is not as severe as it may appear on physical exam, but it's closer to 30% if criteria are met, but decompression is not performed. So for that reason, I sometimes recommend electrodiagnostic testing even in folks who aren't great surgical candidates just to get some prognostic information for counseling purposes. Now, despite the fact that Ramsey-Hunt syndrome and Bell's palsy have similar clinical courses, there is no evidence at this point that decompression is helpful in Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. And the handful of patients I've seen who got decompressed with Ramsey-Hunt have ended up at a house Brackman 3 anyway. Um, there's a role for electrodiagnostic testing and decompression in temporal bone fractures, though, that's supported in the literature. 
Um, and while the two-step process of ENOG and then EMG hasn't really uh, been supported for temporal bone fracture, performing decompression if there is greater than 90% degeneration on ENOG does seem to help since most temporal bone fractures cause nerve compression and edema at the geniculate ganglion rather than transection injury. Uh, the same time limit, though, the two-week time limit, doesn't appear to apply in temporal bone fractures, though, um, and decompression performed even a couple of months later may be useful. Um, so uh, in some cases, imaging and lab testing can be useful too, uh, but those situations are a little bit rarer. Um, obviously, Lyme serology, when the patient has a tick bite or targetoid rash history, is useful, but otherwise I usually reserve testing for when there's something out of the ordinary with the history. Um, when there is recurrent ipsilateral palsy, I worry about a facial nerve tumor and order an MRI. If the palsy doesn't stick to the same side, I'll usually go to serological testing for autoimmune diseases. And if the onset is insidious, I'll get a contrast-enhanced CT of the temporal bone and parotid. Um, given the 8% rate of recurrence in Bell's palsy and the rarity of benign facial nerve tumors and autoimmune diseases um, that cause facial paralysis, a second episode of facial palsy is still more likely to be Bell's than anything else unless the palsy is bilateral, so I won't usually order any studies until the third episode, unless something about the timing or associated symptoms um, is uh, abnormal. Uh, lastly, it's always worth getting photos and a video of every patient at every visit until resolution of the palsy, along with a face score, and that lets you just keep track of progress. The photo should include a frontal view at rest, a basal view of the nose, and the following movements, which should also be documented on video. Eyebrow raise, gentle eye closure, tight eye closure, small smile without dental show, large smile with teeth, lip pucker, and lower lip depression, uh, which both demonstrate function in the important extratemporal facial nerve motor branches and also clearly help you determine house fracking score. So in terms of treatment, how do you typically approach treatment to these patients? Well, treatment uh, usually depends on whether we're talking about acute or chronic paralysis. For acute paralysis, we're usually trying to treat the underlying condition, whereas for chronic paralysis, we're usually trying to rehabilitate the face. There's certainly room for crossover between the two, but that's how we usually end up focusing our efforts. The main issue both acute and chronic paralysis share, though, is corneal protection. That always needs to be first in your mind when you're treating a facial paralysis patient. Most of the time, um, aggressive use of drops and lubricant with regular eyelid stretching and potentially nighttime eyelid taping will be sufficient, but we'll discuss surgical options for the eye in a couple minutes. For acute Bell's palsy, we typically prescribe high-dose steroids, like 60 milligrams of prednisone a day, and low-dose antivirals, like 500 milligrams of valacyclovir twice a day for one to two weeks. If a patient comes in with house 6 paralysis, we'll do electrodiagnostic testing and recommend decompression if appropriate, like we talked about. Um, that said, many patients are not, for some reason, super thrilled about the idea of craniotomy, um, or they're poor surgical candidates, or for some other reason, like COVID, surgery isn't a great option. So in those cases, there's some evidence that very high-dose steroids for a longer period of time, up to even 200 milligrams of prednisone a day for a couple of weeks, um, can improve outcomes. Um, similarly, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome requires a longer duration of steroid administration, like 60 milligrams of prednisone a day for three weeks, um, as well as higher-dose antivirals, like 1,000 milligrams three times a day. Um, steroids are good for other etiologies as well, particularly autoimmune causes, although actually they appear to be harmful in both Lyme disease and Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, which require doxycycline and plasmapheresis, respectively. Management of chronic paralysis um, is a little more nuanced and depends on the individual deficits that we've identified on our uh, zonal physical examination um, and also depends on the time of onset since the paralysis. Um, uh, once you've identified the patient's functional deficits, you can proceed to match them to the options in your own armamentarium and develop a zonally-oriented rehabilitation plan. For the sake of organizing your thoughts, I think it's helpful to divide patients into flaccid and non-flaccid categories, um, and then to categorize treatment options as conservative or surgical, with the surgical options further divided into reinnervation and reanimation. And what kinds of treatments would you offer for flaccid facial paralysis with and without viable musculature versus non-flaccid or post-paralytic facial paralysis? Uh, well, for patients with flaccid paralysis, the timing of intervention is critical because reinnervation options can only work if there's still functional muscle to reinnervate. Once denervated, muscle will begin to atrophy and fibrose irreversibly after about 12 to 18 months if spontaneous recovery hasn't occurred in that time frame. And axons only regrow at about a millimeter per day, which means that even after a nerve repair is performed, it can still take months for the axons to reach the target motor end plates. With that in mind, the best bet then is to intervene early, 
even though there are certainly some reports of successful reinnervation performed even a couple years after the original injury. Um, I think a good time frame to shoot for is probably about six to nine months because by then you can usually get a feel for whether there's going to be any spontaneous recovery. Um, or you can even do an EMG at that point to look for polyphasic potentials or to get a heads up if the nerve is regenerating um, uh, or if you just want to check for fibrillations to make sure that the muscle is still viable. Um, most folks prefer to reinnervate rather than reanimate uh, because the results appear more natural when you use the native facial musculature uh, instead of placing an implant or transferring a muscle from someplace else in the body. Um, but let's talk about reinnervation for a sec. So at its simplest, reinnervation is just repairing an, an injured nerve, right? Whether cutting back the injured ends and performing a primary neurography uh, or placing a cable graft. Um, but it can also include multiple different types and combinations of nerve graft depending on the patient's deficits. Um, so when you're repairing a severed nerve, uh, as Dr. Carlson mentioned in his podcast, it's nice to be able to do it within three days of injury in order to um, allow the use of a stimulator to locate the distal stump uh, because that um, uh, would be before Wallerian degeneration is complete. After that, it gets a little bit trickier, um, but you have to kind of dig around blindly. Uh, still doable, though. Now, the more distal the injury, the better the chance of full recovery, um, and the smaller the branches of the nerve, um, medial to the lateral canthus, um, they don't even usually need to be repaired in order for function to recover. On the other hand, the more proximal the injury, the greater the likelihood of synkinesis. So repair of a main trunk transection will likely result in so much synkinesis that it may be uh, actually worth removing some of the non-essential branches like the cervical in order to help decrease spasticity. Uh, essentially, the fewer the muscles the injured nerve branch innervates, the better the chance of a non-synkinetic recovery. In cases with no viable proximal facial nerve, such as vestibular schwannoma patients, um, we have to move beyond primary nerve repair and think about nerve transfer options. Um, there are a lot of options, including the masseteric nerve, the hypoglossal, spinal accessory, phrenic, um, and the contralateral facial nerve by a crossface grafting. The masseteric nerve is a great option for smile rehabilitation because it has almost twice as many axons as the buccal branch of the facial nerve, which makes it a reliable and robust donor. Its absence is rarely noticed in the long term because patients actually tend to reinnervate their masseters, um, and its location is very convenient. The masseteric nerve is reliably located about three centimeters anterior to the tragus, one centimeter inferior to the inferior margin of the zygomatic arch, and about 1.5 centimeters deep to the masseter fascia. The buccal branch, most commonly used for smile reinnervation, is located at Zucker's point, which is halfway along a line drawn between the helical root and the oral commissure, just superior to the transverse facial vessels and superficial to the masseteric nerve. The caveat to the masseteric nerve is that since the masseter muscle has low resting tone, the masseteric nerve does not provide much resting tone for the face and is therefore best suited to restoration of voluntary movements like smiling, particularly because masseteric nerve transfer patients need to bite down in order to smile, uh, at least at first. Um, later on, they're often able to smile without clenching the jaw, but rarely, except in the case of children, are they able to achieve a truly spontaneous smile. The hypoglossal nerve, on the other hand, does provide excellent resting tone and can be used to restore voluntary movements. Unfortunately, the loss of tongue function is far more problematic than loss of masseter function. Uh, young patients may tolerate it well, but as patients age, the oral deficit can become worse than the facial one would have been. Um, in order to reduce this problem, a lot of folks will avoid transferring the entire hypoglossal nerve and instead split it and transfer half or fewer of its axons up to the facial nerve, uh, or they may swing the facial nerve trunk down into an end-to-side neurography with the hypoglossal, or even place a cable jump graft between the hypoglossal and facial nerves. There are probably about as many ways of doing it as there are surgeons that perform the operation, uh, but ultimately you're rotting Peter to pay Paul any way you choose. So the more axons you leave going to the tongue, the fewer you get going to the face, and the lower your likelihood of a good facial reinnervation. Um, the spinal accessory and phrenic nerves are mostly of historical interest, at least in this country, since most patients don't want to have to shrug a shoulder to smile or worry about facial twitching with hiccups, but the cross-face nerve graft is actually still alive and well. The advantages of the cross-face nerve graft um, is that the deficit from the donor nerve is minimal, um, both from the sural nerve graft that you actually need to do the cross-face, as well as from the donor buccal branch on the good side. Um, and by connecting a buccal branch of the good side to a corresponding branch on the bad side, we can theoretically get a synchronous and spontaneous smile because the patient doesn't have to bite down, move his tongue, or shrug to fire the nerve. The cross-face nerve graft is also theoretically good for other quick facial movements like blinking, but there are a number of problems. First, 
it's notoriously unreliable, and there aren't any good studies showing that it works consistently. When it does, uh, when it does work, it tends to work best in younger patients. Part of this problem may be that one can easily lose up to 50% of the axon count at each neurography, and the graft is very long. So if 800 axons in the donor buccal branch go in, only 200 or so may come out the other end, which may be less than the midfacial muscles actually need to trigger a smile. Secondly, the cross-face nerve graft is dependent on the function of the good facial nerve, which means that it can't be used in patients likely to develop a contralateral facial palsy, like NF2 patients. Um, so since each of these donor nerves has strengths and weaknesses, they're often used in combination to provide a synergistic result. A good example would be a hypoglossal facial jump graft for restoring tone with a masseteric nerve transfer for smile and a cross-face nerve graft for eye blink. If all goes according to plan with this particular combination, the patient recovers resting tone and two volitional movements with minimal functional deficit or synkinesis, but it doesn't always work. So that was reinnervation, um, but let's talk a little bit more about reanimation now. Um, when we're beyond six to nine months after the injury, or we know the facial muscles are non-functional, it may be worth considering reanimation options, or at least doing an EMG to look for viable muscle. I think it's worth categorizing reanimation into options uh, uh, into static um, and dynamic options um, in order to help stay organized. So static procedures tend to be simpler than dynamic ones and are often well-suited to patients who aren't good candidates for long, complex operations. These procedures can be performed at any time, but often the periocular ones are done early in the course of the paralysis. In some cases, we'll place an eyelid weight uh, even within the first couple of days after onset and if we're worried the patient, uh, particularly if we're worried the patient will take a long time to recover. Uh, for example, patients with corneal hypesthesia from skull-based tumor resection uh, and folks with brittle diabetes or other comorbidities are good candidates for early eyelid, place, uh, early eyelid weight placement. The classic eyelid weight is made of gold, usually about 1.2 grams, but many surgeons, myself included, prefer to use platinum because of a lower tissue reactivity rate. Platinum is slightly denser than gold, uh, which allows it to have a thinner profile and makes the weight more aesthetically pleasing, less noticeable under the eyelid skin. Platinum is also available as an articulated chain, uh, as well as the solid plate. The chain has the advantage of decreasing the likelihood of astigmatism, but the disadvantage of increased thickness uh, and therefore visibility when compared to a solid thin plate. Uh, in order to decrease visibility further, some surgeons will place the weight higher up and post-septally so that the orbital fat obscures the weight's contour. But this may have the drawback of causing the lid to open at night when the patient is prone, unlike with a conventional uh, lower pretarsal placement of the weight. Um, eyelid springs can be used as well, uh, and they produce a rapid blink rather than the slow gravity-driven one produced by a weight, but they tend to extrude and are liable to require multiple revisions. Uh, some patients just won't tolerate eyelid procedures or aren't good candidates, uh, and for them, a scleral contact lens, like a prose lens, may be a good option. Uh, it's critical to be familiar with options for improving eyelid closure because of the importance of corneal protection. Other static procedures commonly performed are brow lifting, lower eyelid tightening with a tarsal strip, uh, potentially a lateral tarsorophy or tarsoconjunctival flap, nasal base suspension with fasciolata or suture, nasal labial fold suspension with fasciolata, and oral commissure suspension with fasciolata, uh, EPTFD, or rotational keloplasty. Some surgeons will offer um, asymmetric facelifting as an option, especially in older patients. Um, as a general rule, if you're going to move a facial feature on the paralyzed side, like the brow uh, or the old commissure, um, I would try to put it about halfway between the resting position and the expressive position uh, using the good side as a guide, uh, and that's going to help minimize the perception of asymmetry. For example, the goal of a direct brow lift might be to raise the brow by six millimeters or so relative to the resting position of the good side so that in repose, the paralyzed side is only a little above the good side, and with brow elevation, the paralyzed side is only a little below the good side. For what it's worth, the threshold for detection of facial feature asymmetry by the average bystander is about four millimeters, so there's some wiggle room there. Um, static procedures may be combined with dynamic procedures too, depending on the patient's needs. Uh, eyelid loading, brow lifting, nasal labial fold, and nasal base um, suspension are commonly combined with smile reanimation. Um, so that was kind of the, the different static options, um, but we'll talk a little bit about the dynamic options um, because to me, dynamic reanimation is where things really start to get exciting. Um, those are the operations in which we transfer fun uh, functional muscle uh, to restore movement. So there have been uh, numerous techniques described for restoring a blink, including transferring pedicled orbicularis oculi muscle from the good side and 
um, or even placing gracilis or temporalis muscles uh, under the eyelid skin. Um, but honestly, uh, right now, most surgeons will still use eyelid weights for this and focus their dynamic reanimation efforts on the smile, uh, which the patients and surgeons both find immensely rewarding when it works. The most common options for dynamic smile reanimation used in the United States are temporalis and gracilis muscle transfers, although the pectoralis minor muscle and the latissimus dorsi are commonly used in Europe and Asia. The temporalis muscle can be transferred in the classical fashion, in which the middle third of the muscle belly is flipped downward over the zygomatic arch and sewn into the oral commissure, but this tends to leave a huge amount of bulk over the arch um, with corresponding hollowing in the temple, unless you harvest a temporoparietal fascia flap um, and use that to fill the temporal defect. Alternatively, the tendon of the temporalis muscle can be advanced with or without the coronoid process still attached um, and then sewn into the oral commissure after releasing a muscle a little bit at its origin. So this method is currently favored because it does not leave a hollow in the temple or a bulge over the zygomatic arch. Also, the operation can potentially be performed intraorally and is relatively com uh, quick uh, compared to a free flap. So patients um, who have a lot of comorbidities or are not great surgical candidates may do better with that than with a long operation for a free flap. Gracilis muscle transfer tends to provide greater contractility than temporalis muscle, but it's a much more complicated procedure because it requires microneurovascular surgery. The gracilis uh, can be innervated by the masseteric nerve, by a cross-based nerve graft, or by a combination of the two. When innervated by the masseteric nerve, the gracilis will require the patient to bite down in order to smile, just like the temporalis transfer or the masseteric nerve transfer that we just talked about. Uh, but over time, patients may learn to smile without clenching the jaw. Masseteric uh, nerve innervation of the gracilis provides very reliable results with a greater than 90% success rate. Um, but if you innervate the gracilis with a cross-face nerve graft, you get the advantages of the smile being both uh, spontaneous and more symmetric. However, using a cross-face nerve graft requires a two-stage procedure in which that cross-face graft is placed six to nine months before the muscle transfer is performed. Again, this can't be done for folks with uh, NF2 and is less reliable in older patients with an overall success rate uh, in the 80% range. The dual innervation approach, though, uh, similar to combining nerve grafts like we discussed earlier, theoretically brings the reliability of the masseteric nerve and the spontaneity of the cross-face nerve graft to a single-stage operation and is currently favored by many facial reanimation surgeons. Another trend that we're seeing in facial reanimation is the use of multivector flaps. The classically described gracilis flap elevates and lateralizes the oral commissure, but does not elevate the upper lip or depress the lower lip. So it produces um, what we call a single vector or Mona Lisa smile, a tight-lipped smile with no dental show. The gracilis muscle is also comparatively large and slow, uh, being a postural muscle of the leg, and therefore tends to add a lot of bulk to the face and doesn't always move as quickly as the good side. Because of this, some authors have started to use smaller flaps to minimize bulk, or flaps with multiple neuromuscular units to create a more natural smile. The multivector serratus anterior has been described in Asia, and in the US, the gracilis has been dissected into multiple slips of muscle to add more vectors. Strap muscle flaps, like the sternohyoid and omohyoid, have been used with the goal of producing a faster smile with less resting facial bulk, because strap muscles are more histologically similar to facial mimetic muscles and can contract more quickly than postural muscles. Both of these muscles are natively innervated by the ansa cervicalis, uh, which when harvested with the sternohyoid is potentially even long enough to reach all the way across the face to the contralateral facial nerve. Um, so that can provide the benefit of a cross-face nerve graft without the need for two neurophys. Um, the omohyoid, on the other hand, has the advantage of being slimmer than the sternohyoid and therefore even less likely to introduce excess bulk to the face. But the ansa will not reach all the way across the face with the omohyoid. Both of these strap muscles have been combined into a single transfer as well in order to provide oral commissure excursion and upper lip elevation in a slim and rapidly contracting dual vector flap. Additionally, the U-shape of the ansa cervicalis makes dual innervation with the masseteric nerve and a cross-based nerve graft very straightforward. Uh, regardless of the muscle, most of these free flaps should provide about an 80 to 90% success rate after a re-innervation period of six months to a year uh, but patients will need physical therapy to realize the full potential of the transferred muscles. We're also seeing a lot of innovation in the management of patients with synkinesis and hypertonicity who make up a much larger portion of the chronic facial paralysis population than the folks with flaccid paralysis like we've been talking about. Historically, the mainstays of management have been physical therapy and botulinum toxin injections, um, which definitely improve quality of life. 
these conservative therapies, like the surgical ones we just talked about, are directed at specific deficits. So Botox, for example, is often injected in five-unit aliquots into commonly affected muscles like the orbiculars oculi, the mentalis, depressor angulioris, and platysma. The zygomaticus major can be injected as well, but it has to be done very carefully in order to avoid causing the oral commissure droop. Uh, injections are also useful on the good side, like in the forehead uh, and depressor labii inferioris to improve symmetry with eyebrow raising and smiling. Patients with crocodile tears, or Bogorod syndrome, may benefit from injection of the lacrimal gland, uh, but not everyone has a stomach for that one. Uh, the problem with neurotoxins, of course, is the injections have to be repeated every three to four months, and many patients either want a longer-term solution, or they get injections for so long that they develop antibodies, which reduce the effectiveness of those injections. Patients can switch from Botox to Dysport or Xeomin and Myoblock, but eventually many develop antibodies to all four formulations and are left wanting something more permanent to be done. More permanent solutions need to address either the nerve that's conducting the aberrant signals or the muscles that are contracting inappropriately. Myectomies and myotomies are most commonly done in the platysma and depressor angli oris muscles, both of which serve to release the resting tension uh, in the face and allow the smile to move more freely. These operations are easy to do under local anesthesia. Uh, neurectomy, though, is a little more involved and requires a facial nerve exploration and mapping with a nerve stimulator to identify and then divide redundant facial nerve branches. Um, ironically, the facial nerve is awfully resilient uh, and will frequently re-innervate after a selective neurectomy or a myectomy and cause the synkinesis to return. Because of this, some authors have advocated applying many of the same techniques used for flaccid paralysis to synkinesis, such as free muscle transfer, which then removes the smile from the control of that synkinetic facial nerve uh, and masseteric nerve transfer, particularly in combination with selective neurectomy. Non-flaccid facial paralysis um, is a very frustrating and very common problem, uh, and it will remain that way until we figure out how to redirect nerve growth, uh, or at least stop it from happening in a controlled fashion. Thank you so much for that review. That's very helpful um, and comprehensive. In terms of patient outcomes, though, how long are these interventions expected to last? Uh, that's a great question, um, and it's one patients ask all the time, um, although actually it's usually the, uh, the aging face patients who are asking that. What I usually tell them is that the surgical interventions last forever, but the face will continue to age, so things may droop more over time. Um, static interventions, uh, like brow lifts, ridivectomies, nasal base suspensions, and the like, may need to be tightened up after a few years. Uh, nerve transpositions and free flaps, if they work, should work forever, though. The procedures most likely to lose effectiveness over time um, are neurectomies and myectomies because the nerves and muscles that have been resected may grow back over the course of a few months to a year. Um, injectable neurotoxins, of course, also have a lifespan of only about four months um, or less, depending on the type. And how close to normal facial symmetry or uh, House Brackman 1 could we expect uh, with various different reanimation procedures for chronic facial palsy? That's a really good question, too, um, because it really kind of gets at the, uh, the issue of expectation management and prerogative counseling, right? Um, so to answer your question bluntly, I don't think you can usually grade the result of these procedures on the Hasbrackman scale because uh, we're usually talking about operations that only rehabilitate a single facial feature uh, or movement uh, rather than the whole hemiface. Um, I mean, I suppose if you throw a couple of 10 nylons into a severed uh, main facial nerve trunk, you could hope for a house three result, but restoring smile doesn't uh, bring someone with an otherwise complete hemifacial paralysis any closer to a house one, really. Um, and if you put in an eyelid weight that reestablishes um, complete eye closure, uh, do you call that uh, closure with general effort or do you call that closure with full effort? I mean, it's, it's hard to, to really kind of categorize that on the house scale. Um, the house bracken scale isn't really designed to assess facial rehabilitation, uh, but you could probably do a better job if you wanted to with one of the other scales we talked about earlier. Um, but that also kind of gets at the question of how good of an outcome is good enough? And the answer to that really depends on the patient's expectations. Um, I think it's best to let patients know upfront that normal is pretty much gone, unfortunately, um, uh, and we're not gonna be able to get back there. But our goal will be to get them functioning in society so that they're not overly self-conscious about being seen in public, um, and so that other people don't misread their emotions like we talked about earlier. Um, so I tell them that facial rehabilitation is a journey not a destination, in the same way that you might tell a burn patient that there will likely be several surgical procedures in the upcoming years, um, but then you need to emphasize that you'll be with them every step of the way. Um, so even patients with unreasonable expectations at the beginning will appreciate that commitment from their physicians, and over time, 
their expectations will become more reasonable as they kind of get used to their situation um, and um, their function will improve as you work with them such that you'll usually find a somewhat contented steady state eventually. Great. And for how long do you typically follow these patients after a surgery or intervention? Well, frankly, um, I'll follow these patients as long as they'll come see me. Um, I like to see them a week after surgery for a wound check, uh, and then every month or so until I see movement, mostly to keep their spirits up during the waiting period before the movement starts, uh, which can be as short as two months for mass nerve transfer, uh, all the way up to six to nine months for a free flap. Um, I might expect to see functional improvement for a good year to 18 months after surgery, um, and I'll follow them regularly after that to see if anything needs touching up, um, and also because a lot of these patients will drop off baked goods at Christmas time. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Homan. So to quickly summarize what we've talked about today, facial palsy can occur from central or peripheral nerve lesions, or rarely from dysfunction of facial musculature itself, and occurs in a number of different stages defined from time of symptom onset. Acute facial palsy usually describes the first two weeks with continued potential for spontaneous recovery within those first six to 12 months, and chronic facial palsy often describes the time period after about a year from symptom onset. Reinnervation is possible from around 12 to 24 months after paralysis, though that's usually practically limited to 12 to 18 months. And after 24 months, flaccid musculature is largely non-viable, requiring static suspensions or muscle transfer. Postparalytic or non-flaccid facial palsy occurs when aberrant nerve regeneration causes synkinesis and can occur any time after about six months from symptom onset. When assessing patients, we're looking mainly for regions of facial asymmetry and facial dysfunction, especially in terms of eye closure, external nasal valve function, and smile. A number of different facial grading systems are used to quantify the degree of facial dysfunction, with House Brackman being the most common, but others, such as the Sunnybrook and E-Face grading systems, used for improved zonal and synkinetic assessment. Imaging is mainly focused on pre- and post-op standardized photographs, but further workup uh, could include MRI, CT, or even serologies if you're concerned for another underlying pathology. Management options are varied and include Botox and fillers for improving symmetry or reducing synkinesis, static suspension for improving symmetry, resting tone, and facial function, myectomy or neurectomy to address synkinesis, reinnervation, usually with masseteric, hypoglossal, or contralateral facial nerves, and muscle transfer with delayed reinnervation for smile reconstruction, often with temporalis or gracilis muscle. Oftentimes, patients are treated with multiple interventions at once or sequentially based on their symptom pattern. There is a high success rate with these procedures, though setting reasonable expectations for outcomes is very important, and these patients often require long-term follow-up for continued management of facial asymmetry. Dr. Homan, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Yeah. Um... So uh, these patients can be very challenging, but fortunately, the majority of them will recover on their own. Um, but for the ones who don't, the diagnosis and decision-making process can be very complicated. Every patient has a different face and different deficits. Every patient has different needs and expectations, so every treatment plan will be different. And that's what makes facial paralysis so difficult to treat and to research, but also so rewarding when we do succeed. Well, thank you so much. It's almost time to bring this episode to a close, but before we do, we'll end with a couple of questions for review. As always, I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds before answering it to give you time to come up with the answer or to pause the podcast, and then I'll give you the answer. For our first question, define the time ranges after onset of facial palsy when spontaneous recovery is expected and when viable musculature exists for reinnervation. Spontaneous recovery is expected in an intact facial nerve up to about 6 to 12 months after symptom onset, and reanimation procedures are generally not performed during that time window. Muscles remain viable for reinnervation up to about 18 to 24 months after facial palsy onset, and facial reanimation usually occurs within about a 12 to 18 month window, often leaning toward the earlier side to allow time for axonal regeneration from the site of neurography to the motor end plate. What aspects of history or physical exam of facial palsy patients are concerning for an underlying pathology requiring further workup?
aspects of the history or physical exam of facial palsy patients that are concerning for some underlying pathology would include insidious or prolonged time to onset of facial palsy, recurrent facial palsy, segmental or bilateral involvement, other involved cranial nerves, such as vision changes, hearing changes, numbness, or otalgia, or systemic symptoms like weakness or paresthesias. Put differently, the astute clinician should consider further investigation of anything that isn't rapid onset, isolated hemifacial palsy. What surgical and non-surgical options exist for restoring facial symmetry in chronic facial paralysis without ability for reinnervation? Botox injections and facial fillers can be used on both the affected and unaffected sides in flaccid and non-flaccid paralysis to improve symmetry. For flaccid paralysis, surgical options are mainly limited to static and dynamic reanimation techniques, including eyelid weights, static suspensions of the brow, oral commissure, or nasal valves, and regional or free muscle transfers. Non-flaccid paralysis additionally has options of physical therapy, neurectomy, and myectomy, as well as chemodenervation, nerve transfer, and muscle transfer. And finally, which nerves are typically used in facial reinnervation, and when are they utilized? Reinnervation is most commonly performed with the ipsilateral masseteric nerve but can also be performed with the ipsilateral hypoglossal nerve or the contralateral facial nerve, also called a cross face. The masseter is often used for a very consistent result, but doesn't allow for good resting tone of the face. The hypoglossal nerve gives the best resting tone, but often will result in tongue weakness that can become problematic, especially for older patients. The cross face nerve graft hypothetically allows for the best chance for a symmetric or spontaneous smile, but has unreliable results and has a higher chance of failure. Nerve transfer for flaccid paralysis should be performed within a year of symptom onset, ideally by six to nine months, but this limitation does not exist in non-flaccid paralysis because of muscle viability through synkinetic synapses at the motor end plates. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.